Hello everyone and welcome to the September 19th edition of WorkComp Academy Weekly News. I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today. Let's get started with our litigation report. The city and county of San Francisco filed a petition for a hearing before the California Supreme Court in a last chance effort to reverse the outcome in the Wanda Olgavi case. This summer, the Court of Appeal rejected part of the en banc decision of the WCAB but left intact the ability to rebut the DFEC component of the rating formula. Specifically, the Court of Appeal rejected the mathematical formula devised by the WCAB, pointing out that nothing in Senate Bill SB 899 authorizes or compels the calculation of an alternative diminished earning capacity adjustment factor as detailed by the WCAB in its en banc decision. The court concluded that when the WCAB devised this new methodology, it acted in excess of its authority. Thus, the formula proposed by the WCAB in their in-bank Olgavy opinion can no longer be used. The petition for hearing filed in the Supreme Court by the employer is an extraordinary writ which has very remote chance of achieving a more favorable result for employers. It will likely take several months for some response from the Supreme Court. And now our fraud report. Maxim Healthcare Services, a privately held company, provides in-home health and nursing services. They operate nationwide with over 300 offices, including 67 locations in Northern and Southern California. Maxim was founded by Stephen Biscotti, the majority owner of the Baltimore Ravens. Maxim is accused by state and federal authorities of submitting more than $61 million in fraudulent claims. As a result, Maxim has agreed to pay about $150 million to resolve criminal and civil probes of their alleged fraudulent practices. The company was charged with conspiracy to commit health care fraud in a federal criminal case, but will avoid conviction if it complies with reform and compliance terms laid out by the U.S. Department of Justice. More than 40 U.S. states are thought to be part of the settlement. The matter came to light when a 55-year-old patient who was receiving home nursing services discovered his benefits had exceeded a monthly Medicaid cap. The patient had maintained detailed records and challenged the veracity of Maxim's invoices. And subsequently, the patient initiated a lawsuit under the False Claims Act on behalf of the federal and state governments. According to the patient's records, Maxim claimed more than 700 hours of services that were not provided. It ultimately evolved into a criminal case that has been kept secret for more than a year as several low-level employees of Maxim from around the country were charged and pleaded out in other proceedings. Nationally, eight former Maxim employees and one parent of a Maxim patient have pleaded guilty in the scheme. Under the terms of the settlement agreement, Maxim is prohibited from paying its shareholders any dividends, distributions, or other payments until it has made payment in full, including interest. Under a deferred prosecution agreement with the U.S. Attorney's Office, the company will also come under the oversight of a federal monitor for two years. Prosecutors are now getting tough on abusive pain medication prescribers. Dr. Conrad Murray, 
Michael Jackson's doctor, has joined a small but growing number of U.S. physicians facing criminal charges over their handling of prescription drugs. Prosecutors allege his negligence was so extreme that he should be charged with involuntary manslaughter and punished with prison time. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, fatal overdoses from prescription painkillers more than tripled in the last few years. Consequently, more doctors are finding themselves in the sights of criminal prosecutors. The prosecution of doctors is seen as more effective than bringing cases against their patients. Researchers have identified around 37 reported criminal cases against doctors for overprescribing painkillers and other controlled substances in the last decade. U.S. Drug Enforcement Administration information suggests a similar trend with data on 43 prosecutions. The American Medical Association, on the other hand, has cautioned that the trend toward prosecution has interfered with the practice of medicine. In 1995, the AMA adopted a resolution opposing the attempted criminalization of healthcare decision-making. Many recent cases have been brought under the Controlled Substances Act enacted in 1970 and similar state laws. To establish guilt under the act, the prosecution must prove the physician knowingly and intentionally prescribed the medication outside the usual course of professional practice or not for a legitimate medical purpose. Prosecutors faced this question in the much-publicized case against Anna Nicole Smith's physician, Sandeep Kapoor. The case hinged on whether Kapoor believed in good faith there was a medical purpose for providing Smith with an array of prescription drugs that led to her overdose and death in 2007. The jury acquitted Kapoor last year. In the Michael Jackson case, California prosecutors are not charging Murray with violating a controlled substances law. The anesthetic Murray is accused of giving to Jackson is not a controlled substance. The drug is administered intravenously and is used to induce anesthesia and has rarely been abused as a narcotic. Prosecutors instead allege that Murray breached the standard of care when he administered the anesthetic to Jackson at home and that his gross negligence caused the singer's death. Murray faces up to four years in prison if convicted. The Contractor State License Board Central Statewide Investigation fraud team, also known as the SWIFT team, conducted an undercover operation at a Clovis home last month to crack down on those without the proper license and insurance. Investigators posed as homeowners seeking bids for tree service, painting, and general construction projects. Those who were not properly licensed received notices to appear in court. Some will also face charges of failure to carry workers' comp insurance. During this operation, investigators employed a new law that gives the licensing board the authority to issue a stop order. That law immediately prohibits construction work until workers' comp insurance is obtained for employees. Nine non-licensees received stop orders during the two-day operation. The suspects are scheduled for an arraignment in Fresno County Superior Court. And in regulatory news, the California Senate voted down AB 375 last week. The bill would have made it easier for hospital workers to collect workers' compensation for certain ailments, including blood-borne illnesses. 
This proposed bill would have applied to hospital employees who provide direct patient care in an acute care facility. It would have modified the term injury to include methicillin-resistant Streptococcus aureus, or MRSA, and would have created a disputable presumption of such an injury under certain circumstances. Individuals at risk for MRSA include workers in a healthcare setting, individuals visiting patients in a healthcare setting, athletic facilities, dormitories, military barracks, correctional facilities, and daycare centers. However, MRSA is now found throughout the general community. More recently, a newer, more virulent strain of MRSA has emerged in the community that causes boils, abscesses, and other soft tissue infections that are not linked to previous antibiotic use. Republicans were united in opposition to the measure, and just enough Democrats joined them or did not vote for the bill to fail in the California Senate. The measure was opposed by the American Insurance Association, the California Hospital Association, the California Coalition on Workers' Compensation, and many others. There was an equally large list of supporters, including the California Nurses Association and unions for a number of unrelated occupations. This is the third attempt and failure of the California legislature to pass law affording healthcare workers a presumption of injury. In 2010, AB 1994 proposed similar provisions and also included additional conditions to which the presumption would apply, such as back and neck injuries. And in 2009, AB 664 was similar and also failed to pass. And in medical news, the International Statistical Classification of Diseases and Related Health Problems is a medical classification system that provides codes to classify diseases. The system is most commonly known by the abbreviation ICD. The ICD is revised periodically and is currently on its 10th edition. However, adoption of ICD-10 has been slow in the United States. Since 1988, the U.S. had required ICD-9 codes for Medicare and Medicaid claims, and most of the rest of the American medical industry followed suit. In 2008, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services ordered that the ICD-9 be replaced with the ICD-10 code sets effective October 2013. And with the new classification scheme, there is more complexity. The number of ICD codes will expand from approximately 18,000 to around 140,000. And under the new ICD-10 system, insurance companies may never again wonder where a patient got hurt. For example, there are codes for injuries in opera houses, art galleries, squash courts, and nine locations in and around a mobile home from the bathroom to the bedroom. Federal agencies say the codes will improve payment strategies and care guidelines. Billing experts who translate doctors' work into codes are gearing up to start using the new system in two years. They say the new detail is welcome in many cases, but a few aspects are also causing some head-scratching. Some codes could even seem to be downright insulting. The code R46.1 is bizarre personal appearance, while R46.0 is very low level of personal hygiene. 
it is not clear how many klutzes want to notify their insurers that a doctor visit was code W22.02XA walked into a lamppost initial encounter, or for that matter, W220.2XD walked into a lamppost subsequent encounter. Code V91.07XA involves a burn due to water skis on fire, which caused coders to wonder how such an injury could possibly happen. Much of the new system is based on a World Health Organization code set and use in many countries for more than a decade. Still, the American version developed by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services is considerably more fine-grained. The WHO, for instance, did not see the need for 72 codes about injuries tied to birds. But American doctors, whose patients run afoul of a duck, macaw, parrot, goose, turkey, or chicken, will be able to select from nine codes for each animal. There are 312 animal codes in all, compared to nine in the international version. U.S. hospitals and insurers are bracing for possible hiccups when they move to ICD-10 in 2013, even though they've known it was coming since early 2009. Medicare officials say they believe many big insurers and hospital systems are making preparations, but there may be some issues with smaller ones that won't be ready. Consumer advocates and journalism groups are fighting a U.S. government move to cut public access to a database of malpractice claims and damages paid by doctors around the nation. Since 1986, the Health Resources and Services Administration has tracked troubled doctors' records in the National Practitioners databank. This electronic database is confidential and open only to hospitals, state licensing boards, and other eligible healthcare entities. However, the agency has also been stripping the database of any identifiable elements and making it available online to researchers, patients, and media throughout the country as a so-called public-use file. Problems arose after a Kansas City Star reporter combined the redacted data with his research of court records to identify the local neurosurgeon. He later ran a story exposing the doctor's history of being sued for malpractice. The government reacted by removing the public use file from the website. Since the Obama administration pledged greater transparency, the move has puzzled journalists who for years have used the publicly available anonymous data to expose medical malpractice. Journalists also criticized the warning letter to the reporter before his story ran, telling him he could be hit with civil monetary penalties for naming the physician based on confidential data from the file. NCCI has been releasing studies on the use of prescription drugs in workers' compensation, a significant driver of workers' compensation medical costs for many years. In 2010, NCCI identified a sudden and significant growth in the share of workers' compensation drugs dispensed by physicians. The new 2011 NCCI update continues the examination of workers' compensation prescription drug use. The current prescription share of total medical costs is 19%, slightly higher than the estimate given at the time of the 2010 update. Thus, prescription costs continue to escalate. 
the powerful opiate OxyContin climbed from the number three workers' compensation drug in 2008 to now number one. Hydrocodone acetaminophen dropped from the top workers' compensation drug in 2008 to now number three. Cost increases have been driven more by increases in utilization rather than by drug price increases. Increased utilization can be the result of a physician prescribing more drugs or more expensive drugs or a combination of the two. And the increase in dispensing by physicians has been noted in almost every state. The share of work comp prescription costs associated with physician dispensing had been very stable until 2008 when it increased dramatically. The share increased again in 2009. California is second only to Florida in terms of the percentage of drugs that are dispensed by physicians. Both states lead the nation. It is likely in California that monetary gain by physicians is the major incentive for the increase in this practice, although it was not a specific conclusion of the report. And in financial news, a new CWCI study says that the average medical costs have grown steadily since 2005 and now medical expenditures are above the levels noted prior to enactment of the 2002-2004 reforms. CWCI analyzed data from nearly 2 million claims. The latest study confirms the results of earlier reports that showed a decline in average medical expenses payments per claim from 2002 up through 2005, followed by continued growth until the most recent measurements. However, the rate of medical inflation is slowing but still rising and costs are now more than double the pre-reform levels. All four medical expense subcategories displayed similar patterns of climbing to record highs over the last four to five years. And in other news, there is very little research defining the personality traits that make a great risk manager. But now there's a new research on this topic published by Active Risk in Herndon, Virginia. While risk managers with traditional skills are still in the majority, a large group of risk managers, 40%, exhibit non-traditional characteristics. The second group is characterized by the terms drivers and evangelists with more social skills and charm. Businesses are increasingly looking to the risk management function to help identify critical risks and propose mitigation strategies to enable the business to have sustainable growth. Organizations are also maturing in their approach to risk management, and risk is gaining a voice at a senior level of management. To support these increasing demands, the study claims that the role of risk professionals is rapidly evolving. 60% of risk managers were classified as mainly reactive introverts, while the remaining 40% were classified as mainly proactive introverts or proactive extroverts. Proactive introverts or drivers represent individuals determined to see a project brought to a successful conclusion. Proactive extroverts or evangelists possess more social skills and charm. Risk managers need to be aware of other personality types in different departments and adapt their style accordingly. What worked in the past may not be appropriate as an organization's risk maturity increases. And that's all our news and events for this week. 
please check our website daily for news updates, for past editions of our news, and for much, much more. And remember, you can subscribe to our weekly news podcasts and special reports using your iPhone, your iPad, or iPod by searching for WorkComp Academy in the iTunes Store. Again, I'm Renee Foles with Floyd, Scarin, and Kelly. Thanks for joining us today, and please drop by again next week for more news.